so they have any idea what they are, they are where they're from. Force pilots have very often reported sighting of objects in the air that seem to defy the laws of physics. Uh, yeah, welcome to episode 26 of Occam's Razor. I'm your host, Jim Birchall, coming to you from my home studio. Uh, we are still during, uh, still the lockdown is happening in New Zealand at the moment, so I haven't been able to get to the station to do any podcasts. However, with the advent of modern technology, that's not an issue because I have a very special guest today, um, a fellow of uh, the British Society of um, Psychical Research, um, John Fraser, also a renowned author, is on the show. How are you today, John? I'm fine, thank you, German. Thank you very much for having me on Occam's Razor. Uh, no, it's a pleasure a to talk to you. You keeping yourself busy during the lockdown? Uh, garden, kitchen, um, dining room, living room, garden. <laughs> I've got a, a few gaps in my diary, so um, uh, so it's um, uh, good to make contact with the people of New Zealand. Yeah, because at the moment, I'm not the making contact with the people down the road. No, absolutely. Uh, I'm fascinated by the Society of Psychical Research uh, that you're involved with. Um, for those who don't know, it's a... Um, Society that started back in, I think it's 1882, is that correct? That's right, uh, yes. Uh, and basically the purpose, um, investigating um, you know, paranormal and parapsychology and that sort of stuff. I assume it's um, a, a place buzzing with like-minded individuals, um, people like me and you, who, who truth seekers or people that are just interested in paranormal phenomena, is that correct? Yeah, it's... Um, uh... It mainly concentrates on ghosts in the afterlife, life and mediums and so on, not so much UFOs. But I mean, I mean, it was actually started, as you say, in 1882 at a time when there was so much scientific invention going on that people actually thought they were going to quite find a simple and rational explanation for the paranormal. I mean, yep. along the way, it's had, um, for example... Arthur Balfour as a as a president who later went on to be prime minister of the country. So during, I mean, imagine imagine having Boris Johnson these days. Um, uh, possibly not quite the same advantage, but there you go. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll wait. We'll wait till he's over his coronavirus. We will. We will. In, we will indeed. And I hope he gets well soon. But. Um, I mean, it's it's a reasonably well-funded society. Um, I've got offices in um, uh, Kensington, which we unfortunately can't, of course, get to at the moment. Um, yep. uh, but um, and we've been chugging away for the last um, nearly one and a half centuries, um, making little bits of progress here and there, but probably haven't quite answered the question yet. The I was interested that it started in 1882 because that was kind of uh, when spiritualism was all the rage and we used to get all these photographs of sort of people with ectoplasm coming out of their nose and all that sort of thing. Is that is that what sort of inspired the creation of the society? That was um, certainly one of the things that inspired the creation of the society. I mean, you had the Fox sisters in America who basically created yep. spiritualism. And then um, uh, 
and then um, uh, quite a lot of, um, uh, in inverted commas, interesting phenomena, which when we look back on it, um, uh, the photographic evidence was a little bit dubious. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you know the issue. Not He wasn't actually a member of the Society of Psychical Research, but Nobel Prize winner Charles Richet um, yeah. uh, investigated a medium um, and took very dubious photographs, which included um, uh, the title of a newspaper and a apparently paper mache figure. Um, uh, so it does show that even if somebody is very well qualified in science, it doesn't necessarily make them a good person to be open-minded. Um, but nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, there's been um, far better examples than that. Probably our best recent example was um, our investigation of the and a fairly recent example was our investigation of the Enfield poltergeist in the yep. um, 1970s and 1980s, which is probably one of the most famous cases in the world. It was, just for those who don't know, the Enfield poltergeist um, was some super, well, a claim of some supernatural activity in, uh, I think it's Green Street, wasn't it, in, um, in Enfield there? That's right, yes. Um, in, in, the, in the late 70s, and it, it kind of, it, it spawned a whole a whole movement of books and movies like The Conjuring and things like that, and um, yeah, and it was, it was you know probably the most best. It's probably the best documented poltergeist case of all, isn't it? Um, I think it was about for about eighteen months and scared the hell out of a uh, a young lady called Peggy, I think her name, um, and Associated People. But um, you probably know more about it than I. Yes, yeah, so obviously. Uh, my, I mean, they've both sadly passed on, but um, my colleagues. Morris, Gross and Guy Playfair, I think, spent about a thousand hours uh, in total um, over, over a period and brought other people in as well. And yep. everything going on. What makes it most interesting is, apart from obviously Morris and Guy, there was probably over a hundred witnesses that experienced something unusual. And it's kind of that depth yep. of witness testimony that um, uh, even for a a sceptic makes it very difficult to use William of Ockham's rule that the simplest explanation is the best. Um, sure. There's no simpler explanation for that one. The jury has to stay out. And that's that's why it's sort of held its own for sort of 40 years, isn't it? And um, in, in regards to the fact that so many different people witnessed events and, and things like that and it never quite nailed down the uh, the evidence that was required to convince sceptics and things like that. And the, since the actual case has been some interesting twists as well, um, one of my other colleagues, a chap called Barry Colvin, actually took the um, uh, part of Enfield, the Enfield recordings that involved poltergeist Wrapping noises and compared yeah. them with various other poltergeist wrapping noises and found they had a very interesting acoustic resonance as if if i if you wrap your knuckle on the table um the acoustic resonance peaks nearly immediately, but with these particular tapes, they were actually peaking quite slowly nearly as if the sound was coming out of the wood rather than being put into the wood, 
or the wall yeah. or whatever was being tapped. So there's possibly even a way for identifying poltergeist, um, you know, particular poltergeist noises, which are very different sure. and difficult to replicate. It's, um, as we said, that's the most well-known um, case, but given the UK and it's, it's um, uh, bountiful supply of, of spirits and ghosts and hauntings and stuff like that, um, is there any that have reached the level of media attention um, as, as we got with Enfield? Um, there's one that seems to be gathering a lot of pace at the moment. Um, there's been numerous docudramas on it, um, uh, which is um, uh, a place called the Cage St. Osef's, uh, which is a small, uh, large village in Essex. Um, yep. Now... It's, um, What's it called, sorry? The Cade? St. Joseph's. Yep. It, it's it's an old, it's basically an old lock-up cell that's been, which was used for local criminals. It's been converted into a um, uh, domestic house and um, sure. which had a unmarried mother called Vanessa Mitchell who spent three years uh, um, and then had to flee the place let it out to lodges and um, uh, who, who didn't stay long and has basically ever since been using it as a, a um, uh, place for people to investigate with quite interesting results, actually. Um, there, I mean, where is the, where is the property? Sorry? It's in St. Osef's, O-S-Y-T-H, yeah. in Essex. No, um, no. There's two things that's made this very popular. There is a, there is a compelling narrative behind it that um, uh, claims a witch was imprisoned there and it might be the ghost of a witch, which obviously makes for a yep. good um, uh, good thing. Now, there's debates about... Good story. Good story. <laughs> now, there's de debates about how, how old the actual lockup is. So it may or may not yep. have been a place where the witch house the camp was kept, but nevertheless, it does make a good it does make a good narrative. But behind that narrative, there is actually some fairly solid phenomena. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point there is some kind of movie coming out of it. There's already been a couple of docudramas in the UK. And so yeah. perhaps watch this space. Yeah, sure. They, you'd be the kind of guy that consult on something like that as well. Um, would I be the kind of guy that consults on some? I've, I've, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wait for the telephone call. <laughs> sure. <laughs> fair play. Um, yeah, they have, fair um, you must get calls from. Sorry. I was just going to say it's also fair to say, guy, guy, Playfair. Um, yep. never when they did the conjuring based on Enfield, um, Morris Gross, the other investigator, had already passed on, and but Guy Playfair hadn't, and um, uh, they most certainly didn't contact Guy about it, and um, uh, just to be on the safe side, wrote his entire part out and just had one investigator from, from England, um, uh, just in case they did anything scurrilous. Um, best. So so it all depends on the slant the movie companies want to take. And was he, uh, Guy, um, Guy Playfair, was he um, 
happy to not be consulted because it was you know the the film took on some sort of artistic license obviously as well or was he was he miffed by the whole thing he would have i think he would have preferred to have been consulted um uh, uh, but um it was actually based around uh, the I've forgotten the name. The two American investigators actually probably only spent about a day there. I think the Warrens, who have unfortunately passed on as well. Um, so there was a lot of artistic license. Um, uh, there was yeah. a docudrama on Sky Television in the UK, which was a lot more accurate and um, which Guy was consulted on. Um, and um, his only complaint was that his character was at one point thrown against the wall when he wasn't. And it wasn't so much that we're using artistic license. He was kind of saying, well, why do they need to do that when they skip the incident where the fireplace um, was pulled out of its um, brackets and raised three feet off the floor? <laughs> you know, I mean, why make, why make things up if there's... I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that'd be something you'd think would make the final cut. You know? Yeah. That's sort of pertinent to the whole thing, isn't but, it? Um, he was... Um, sorry, go on. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, so Guy was... He was involved um, with Yuri Geller at some point as well, wasn't he? He didn't... Best of my knowledge, he didn't test him, but he was certainly a... Um, uh, certainly on reasonably good corresponding terms with him. And um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of Guy's conclusions about Yuri. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always been that question mark with Yuri Geller, isn't there? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, your show's called Occam's Razor. I mean, if you if yep. if Yuri Geller... I'm, I'm not a great fan of James Vandy because he, he, he likes to kind of just... He doesn't start out with an open mind. But I mean, to be fair to no. him, if um, uh, if he's he's seen a lot of rubbish though. Yeah, he's seen a lot of rubbish over the years, but still, um, yeah. but, but still, there's also a lot of things that he can't immediately explain. Um, but nevertheless, if if Randy can do everything that Geller can do, it's really um, uh, it's really up to Geller to prove that um, uh, he's doing it by some other means than the ones Randy's using. Well, um, so. There's certainly the burden of proof on on Yuri Gallier, isn't he? Is he does he still perform and stuff? Is he still around? I think I don't know if he performs actually. Um, he certainly pops up every now and again in chat shows and stuff like that, and and so on. Yeah. He's, he's still very much around, but he's not. Um, uh, I don't think he's actively metal bending in public. Um, uh, no. to the best of my knowledge. Because he got, did he get picked up on the Randy show with with some sort of uh, wires up his sleeve sort of situation? Did he? Was it was it on the the one million dollar challenge or was it something related to that? I don't think he's ever been picked up with wires up his sleeve. Um, I'm not sure you thought you'd do with wires up your sleeve anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably paraphrasing, but you know, maybe magnets between his fingers or something like that. Um. I mean, I mean, I've heard, I've heard the way it can be done by a magician is you bend it before you even start to bend it, and then you, um, um, and then you just hold the bent bit in in your palm. Um, but um, uh, I'm not an expert in Yuri Geller, so I, I, I won't comment on what may or may not have been up his sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're just gonna. I'm just having a look at the brief for your new book, which is called uh, Poltergeist: A New Investigation into Destructive Haunting. Mm -hmm. 
So fascinating. Um, it says you're updating uh, Colin Wilson's work, uh, his, his book, Poltergeist. Uh, Colin was a great uh, author, not just of the um, paranormal and parapsychology. He also wrote uh, quite a lot of other books. Yeah, he was a criminologist um, and, um, well, um, I think he called himself an existentialist philosopher. Sure. <laughs> he was certainly a sharp guy. I remember reading, uh, I think it was one of those compilation books about world's big book of mysteries or greatest mysteries or one of those sort of things that came out. I remember buying it when I was a student sort of in the 90s and I was just fascinated with the book and I couldn't put it down. And it had stories sort of, you know, it had the usual UFOs, Bigfoot, um, uh, cryptozoology sort of stuff, but it had really uh, good, you know, tales from the UK like Ben McDewey and, um, you know, the, the big the big, big grey man and all this sort of carry on and the uh, um, big explosion that was in Russia with the, with the uh, meteorite and that sort of stuff. And it was just, I just couldn't put it down. You know, it was just, um, he, he really gripped me. And I, then I started reading some of his other stuff as well. And um, yeah, he was my go-to have you read, uh, reference. Toward have you read The Occult by, by Wilson? No, I haven't. It's actually. like um, I see he's done about a hundred books or so, isn't he? So I have to make my way through. It's um, uh, it's about uh, it's about seven hundred pages, and it will probably take you to the end of the lockdown. But it really is, I mean, it really is fascinating just the way he writes about characters and brings them alive. Um, uh, so yeah. um, so there, there, there you go. I was, I was here to plug a book by John Fraser Poltergeist, but instead I am plugging Colin Wilson, The Occult. There you go. <laughs> um, now, you take, this is you, John takes readers on a journey uh, with, from the Borley Rectory to the Isle of Man, and I suppose everything in between. What gave you the inspiration for this book, John? Um, well, it was actually uh, about seven or eight years ago, I was actually, um, uh, I don't we were at the point of doing a series of books on um, on on um, the paranormal through a um, through an organisation called ASAP, the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, and um, I got offered a book and, to do a book on poltergeists, having done one on ghosts in the fairly recent past, and um, uh, I, I took on the brief. Now that all fell through. But the more I looked into it, the more I found out, A, there probably hadn't been a major book written about poltergeists in general since Colin Wilson's effort, which is 38 years ago. And yep. B, I started to think um, a lot of people are currently spending the night in possibly haunted houses, seeing possible shadows from the corner of their eyes, um, uh, which yep. might be something, might not. But even... We did a... I'm I was sorry, just going to yeah. say, but even if it is something interesting, how can you prove it to anybody? And that's... that's that, mm, the corner of the eye stuff, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit loose. It's a bit it? loose. It Maybe, let, let's assume it's a ghost, but, I mean, how can you actually, how can you actually prove it? Because it's perfectly rational, psychological explanations, and so on. However, if yeah. an object moves 10 foot across the room, um, there's no psychological explanation in the world for that. You're into what I would either call a fact or fraud scenario. Either somebody's tricked you, made it up, what have you, 
or something has happened which we can't explain within the bounds of science. So you've got... there's not much middle there's not much middle ground there, is there? You know, when you see these uh, poltergeist videos on YouTube and stuff like that, it can only it's pretty conclusive that it can only be, uh, as you say, you know, someone playing a trick or some genuine phenomena happening. Exactly. So you've got something that is, in essence, testable. Um, I, I don't think, sure. I mean, one of the subplots of the book, and one of the reasons I ended up writing it, even without this particular series of books, um, uh, was that um, uh, I don't think we can prove the paranormal through um, spending the night in old dark haunted houses. I think we will yeah. have to be looking at the more sort of poltergeist type phenomena on the spectrum. And as there hasn't been yeah. a as there possibly hasn't, at least in the UK, been a book for the best part of 38 years. I thought it was time to, if you like, update it. Well, there's plenty of material there, obviously, as well. Um, it's, let's have a look here. Borley Rectory interests me. I was actually in the UK last, when was I? Last April, May. Um, and I was going to meet a couple of guys who'd done a uh, book. Uh, on on Harry Price and Boy Eddie, Eddie Brazil, was it? Uh, I think that was one of the guys. Yeah, the guys yeah. called Paul yeah, Stevens. And, uh, Paul, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, anyway, it fell through. I just had some travel issues. I, I had to go back to France and this sort of thing. Um, anyway, uh, so that was sort of one thing was on my bucket list, for lack of a better term, um, to go to the Boy Rectory site. I understand nowadays it's, it's um, less impressive than it probably is in my head, but um, my my uh, feeling on Harry Price was that he was a little bit of a showman. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I'm sure you can tell me a little bit more about it because it was sort of the most famous example of apparent haunted phenomena. Uh, well, that was documented up until that point, I think wasn't it? What were your impressions? I think you underestimate Harry Price. He was a big bit of a showman. Um, uh, I love the yeah. uh, I, I, I love the time when he um, uh, when he was trying to do an experiment in firewalking, and um, uh, and instead of just using the usual coals, they put he put a hundred copies of the Times newspaper on top of them. Of course, the Times gave it a lot of coverage. I mean, Harry Harry Price yep. liked being in the newspapers. There's no doubt about it. Um, but. Yep. You know, some scientists love being in the newspapers. It doesn't, it doesn't in itself um, make him a bad or fraudulent investigator, although he has been accused in one or yeah. two instances. Um, I mean, you know, anyone that comes on your show probably likes being in the on the radio. It doesn't make them bad people. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I mean, Harry Price. But the thing about Burley Rectory is it doesn't just rely on Harry Price. There's well-authenticated phenomena going back into Victorian times and all the way up to the present day. So, again, what I like about cases is when they've got a deep, uh, a deep selection of witness pool, if, if you like, for want of a better yep. word. Uh, like, if some, if, if, if only a the immediate family in a place has seen things that's they may well have seen things they may well have heard things but from an evidential point of view it's not very interesting Burley has probably as many witnesses 
as over a longer period as Enfield. So, and that was that was pre prices involvement as well. Pre prices and post prices. I mean, people still see see things to this day. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, as to on the site, um, there's a bit of phenomena on Burley Church, which they do tend to lock up now because some of the villages don't tend to like ghost hunters. They possibly had too many of them in the past. Mm. Although I did actually, um, I was actually at Burley Church for at the Christmas before last. I was staying in the country cottage um, for Christmas, and we couldn't resist just popping in for the Christmas service. It was very nice, actually. <laughs> Didn't see anything. Because yep. the original, the original property burned down, didn't it? Was it uh, John Bull's property? Um, it was. It was the Reverend Bull's property. It then got taken over by um, the Reverend Smith. It then got taken over by another reverend with a rather controversial wife who was about 35 years younger than him, which is a story in itself. <laughs> it then got purchased <laughs> by a Captain Gregson, um, and it was under, after being rented out by Harry Price for a year, uh, who sent various witnesses along to see what they saw. And Yep. And it mysteriously burnt down under the ownership of Captain Gregson in about 1947, 48. Okay. What caused that uh, fire? When you said mysterious, was there? Were you leading towards something? Um, well, some people have hinted it was an insurance fraud. Um, uh, other people <laughs> have um, said there was an interesting seance in, would you believe, Streatham, which is just up the road from where I live in Croydon, and nowhere near yep. Burley Rectory, that actually predicted the fire. So it's kind of mysterious from one or two different different angles. Um, I think one or two newspapers claimed they, th they could see ghosts coming out of the flames, but you can see all kinds of things in flames. So I, I wouldn't put too much into that one. Well, our old friend uh, Perry Dolia comes into things, doesn't it? When when, when uh, someone's planted with an idea in the head. No, I'm joking. Yeah. So yeah, Perry Dolia, Ab absolutely. Um, so 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 yes, it was mysterious in various ways, but um, uh, finally it was demolished. But um, uh, people started seeing things in the church, and um, even wrong. occasionally in the gardens that have been actually built over the site of the. Um, of the rectory, so so it, so it's definitely worth me going and having a look around, taking some pictures and, and soaking up the the boily atmosphere. Uh, up to a point, um, you mm -hmm. Burley's not really a proper village. It's like a ten houses in a church, and they've managed to okay. section it off in a way that there's no easy way to park these days um you'd probably have yep. to have a little walk and be fairly subtle um i don't know whether the church is kept locked now i mean it wasn't in when i visited some time ago but they are um the people that live in the cottage opposite the rectory oh sorry opposite the church are not great fans of um uh, paranormal investigators I think they've had to fill a little okay. bit too much. Other people in the village find it fascinating, but um, 
But um, you, if you were going over there, I could put you in touch with one or two people who know the current situation better than me. Um, uh, but that would be a yeah. trick. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's something to tick off, isn't it? It's always just been in the back of my mind because that was one of the incidents that actually got me interested in the, in the whole um, scope of the paranormal and stuff, reading about that as a kid. And, and obviously that got the juices flowing, got me excited. And I suppose, you know, because it was so well documented, it, stories like that travel around the world, don't they? And, and, um, and the element of Harry Price, you know, renting the place and taking it over as just just as a place to conduct his research you know gave it gave it some credence to a to a young mind it's also a very good example of we kind of talk about ghosts and poltergeists as if they're two different things i mean another another way i try and describe in the book is I've, i've gradually come to the conclusion that whatever they are they're just different symptoms probably of the same thing i mean Burley Rectory had quite a lot of poltergeist activity, but it also had a phantom nun doing the walks down the garden. And there was that like nun's a... walk, wasn't it? That, that, ter- that terrified me <laughs> as a kid. The nun's walk. Because didn't they say that the family was eating dinner and then she came past the window a few times and they ended up bricking it up? I'm not sure how much truth there is to that. but The, the window was definitely bricked up. But um, uh, as to the reason yep. behind it, nobody's quite sure. But it does make a good narrative, and there's nothing wrong with a good narrative. It does. Absolutely. Um, so what other places? The book obviously details 296 pages, so it details um, more than just Borley. What other places oh. are, uh, are synonymous for... Pol- for Pol- um, well, the, the book, really, book yeah. isn't just about places that have poltergeists, although do obviously talk about places yep. that have poltergeists. It's kind of a little journey in trying to yep. figure out what poltergeists are. Um, uh, and um, I'll, I'll give you a little example of um, how this journey might progress, just for a, for a thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, uh, the talking gif, the talking mongoose of Cashin's Gap. Is that the one that bit somebody? No, I don't sense, think or... he bit somebody. Um, I I have. Yeah, it was um, yeah. it was good old Harry Price again, um, who got um, oh, not just him, um, Nando Fodor, another investigator, spent a lot of time there, but um, he got a lot of ridicule because he um, uh, somebody on the Isle of Man reported that the thirteen-year-old daughter had been seeing a talking mongoose and communicating with it and um, they'd been hearing things as well and um, uh, Price went to went over to visit it at, as did a few others and um, obviously a lot in the press didn't take it seriously but well <laughs> but, yeah. but, um, uh, but now this was a really weird house in fact I've actually went to the site of the house and I nearly got stuck in a peat bog trying to make my way back down. It's right in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, yep. Now, imagine the scenario. Two elderly parents and um, uh, a 13, 14-year-old girl, lonely, etc. Imagination starts to run wild. Um, uh, strange yep. things start happening. Cracks, bangs, things start moving. She identifies it 
as a mongoose. She started off with a weasel and then changed her mind to a mongoose. There were okay. actually mongoose on the Isle of Man at the time. Um, and it's yep. probably just the same way she identified a some poltergeist phenomena, her way of sort of rationalizing it and giving it an identity. It's got a lot in common. Have you heard of the Bell Witch incident in 1830s Tennessee, America? Sure. The phenomena yep. is virtually yep. exactly the same. Um, uh, you know, knocks, bangs. There was actually singing heard in both instances. And um, I think um, uh, Betsy Bell was a year younger, but more or less the same age. And um, Betsy Bell, because of her cultural background, you know, um, identified it as a witch. And um, uh, and um, this girl in the Isle of Man identified it as a as a mongoose. It's just a way of rationalising strange things happening. Now it gets even <laughs> more interesting. Sure. You go. You go a few hundred. You go uh, another thousand miles to Eastern Europe, you've got enough a lot of vampire cases, which who would take seriously, yep. um, apart from my book and poltergeists, yep. um, which are actually, <laughs> when you pull back the vampire terminology, are actually have very, very similar phenomena to poltergeists. So you, you, you actually start That's to get... A scenario where people are calling them different things all over the world. I think in in Colombia they call them duande, or which is a rough translation for goblins. And again, who would want to admit to going goblin hunting? But once you start to look at the phenomena, it's just the same type of phenomena, which actually shows it's possibly worldwide, round, not reliant on any one particular culture which makes it far more persuasive. Absolutely. Uh, what were the characteristics of the mongoose? She said it was talking to her. She obviously, she, she saw the thing and it, it, did it strike up a conversation or what was it? It seemed to, it seemed to vaguely talk both to her and, and to her mother and father and, and sometimes bring back news from the village that they wouldn't possibly have known it did all the other things like rattle beds, crashes and bangs, um, and occasionally threw things around just like any other um, mongoose poltergeist would. Um, it... <laughs> so we're thinking that is the thinking that um, the mongoose was um, was possessed by a, a, a mongoose. A mongoose didn't like exist. Mo no, no, there was no, there was the no mongoose. Um, it was just um, something okay. that um, uh, that um, that was identified by a 13, 13 14 year old girl as a mongoose, um, uh, and she okay. may even have taken a couple of um, uh, photographs of rabbit skins to prove it. But the but there was enough interesting things happening there to show that she might have been trying to justify some very strange events that were happening to her. I mean, she probably didn't even know the word poltergeist. If you think about it. No, well, that's right. In the um, in modern times, obviously, with the advent of camera phones and stuff, you know, we're expecting to catch more paranormal activity and poltergeist activity. Um, 
much to the detriment of the movement and the work of people like you, you know, it is, it's, it's uh, sullied a bit by, um, you know, opportunistic people making hoax videos and stuff like that. Is there anything from, you know, recent times, um, you know, we, we've been talking about historical narratives in terms of Enfield and, and the talking mongoose. Is there anything recently that's, that's come to mind and made it into the um, book? Well, the subtitle of the book is uh, is Poltergeist New Investigation into Destructive Haunting, including the Cage, Witches, yep. Prisons and Tuzifs. So um, uh, that case we were discussing earlier very much does get into sure. the book. Um, now, um, one of the reasons I put the including, apart from the fact it's a very well-known case, which will um, uh, possibly interest people, especially... Um, especially in the UK, and uh, is because I did a very in-depth um, bit of research into the cage. Uh, now, the cage has had a lot of hype and a lot of dodgy photographs, which are supposed to be this, that and the other, which have probably no validity whatsoever. But it does also have a lot of underlying phenomena. And I actually luckily got the chance to speak to all the initial witnesses of the case and quite a lot of the paranormal investigation teams that had investigated it after Vanessa Mitchell left the property. And there was actually a certain similarity into all the things that people experienced, including no less than five incidents of poltergeist, or, or at least unexplained, in inverted commas, poltergeist scratchings, when people suddenly obtained spontaneous scratch match marks on them whilst investigating or whilst living in the premises. Um, also yeah. included a few hot spots. And um, uh, it's another interesting twist is there was a suicide there fairly recently and fairly recent history and uh, what the book does tend to show is that there's usually something that seems to trigger off a poltergeist type incident um sometimes it can be a relationship going sour sometimes it can be a death in the family um all kinds of things it can even just be moving house in the first place uh, but there's usually something that seems to be underlying when you start questioning witnesses. You know, something has happened to trigger something off. Um, so it's quite interesting that yep. there was a suicide there in the past. Is that a case of, um, you know, people filling in the blanks and finding you know, commonality between um, their experiences, in your opinion? Or do you think it's 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 kind of genuine that, these things are related to the to the activity. Uh, there is a well, you can't say for sure what the causal causal relationship is, and I do spe I do speculate in the yeah. final chapter who doesn't. Um, but nevertheless, um, I mean, for example, can't go into any detail because these are cases that were brought to the society for SPR recently. But um, I mean. Every time, every time we get a potential poltergeist case, there is 
once you start asking a couple of questions, there's maybe something, you know, a child's unwell or something like that, um, or mm. there's been certain issues. Um, nearly invariably, I'd say. Um, so you've at le- you've at the very least got um, it's it's argued that poltergeists are triggered triggered by mainly girls but possibly boys going through puberty. It's definitely more complicated than that. I mean that's a stressful time in itself. Um, but um, it can be mm. there always seems to be some kind of trigger, and I think that goes beyond chance, which makes it. Um, Fascinating to find out if there is indeed a causal causal relationship. Absolutely. I mean, um, so you, you sort of, you're collating the evidence in eyewitness reports and stuff like that. Does there seem to be a pattern, or there obviously did seem to be a pattern developing that, that these people had something going on in their lives that made the the activity sort of attached to them or attached to the. I would say there's a combination of two two things. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. It seems to be emotional stress can trigger off a poltergeist incident. What that is, um, we will speculate on. It, there are also certain types of. Um, well, Certain types of environment seem to help it along as well. Um, there was a survey done yeah. by a chap called Lambert for the SPR in the 1950s that showed that um, uh, this type of phenomena um, uh, seems to statistically happen close to water and seems to statistically at least begin in the wet winter months. And um, there's also an argument that um, there may be something to be said for an area of unusual geological or even seismic activity. I mean, there's... Are are we we starting to talk low lines? Not low lines, no, not necessarily. I'm talking about... Well, I'm, I'm talking. I'm, I'm. The example I was going to bring up was um, there's a place called Langenhoe Church, again in Essex near Colchester, which was um, uh, actually on probably the most earthquake-prone area of the UK, and there was actually a major earthquake just by there, and in the late 19th century, uh, after which the whole area seems to have had some very weird yep. things happening. Um, uh, there's other other places like that around, but that's probably the best example that comes to mind. So there seems to be a whole facet of things that yep. could, um, uh, I mean, that, that could, if you like, trigger the mind off. Um, uh, now, mm. so I do gradually come to the conclusion and a very speculative one that if poltergeists exist, they're probably not some dead person trying to communicate. They are probably um, some kind of um, power within us going a little bit mad and getting triggered off. And my best argument for that would be um, they rarely actually say or do anything of any sense at all. They'd be very, very, very dull companions to go out to a restaurant or a pub with. Um, When they do communicate, restaurants (laughs) and pubs, just... Well, that that smash all the pint glasses. Well, yes. Yeah, so when they do communicate, at at best, at best, you'll get 
there's a case in Andover where they started predicting the next week's football results and they couldn't even get that right. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you got right, that would have been something. Oh, right. um, so they do really behave yeah. like, um, uh, you know, like young children, if you like. It's which makes you think that, like, if I was, to, if if I was a self-respecting spirit trying to communicate from the dead. I wouldn't go around giving out the football results for next week and getting them wrong. You know, I'd want to do something a little bit more meaningful. <laughs> um, but, I mean, when you look at sure. all the split personalities, um, cases and what have you, um, you get enough, a lot of personalities that are very basic. And it's only one leap away from saying that if you could have something in your subconscious that can not only be an alternative personality but actually have or trigger powers, um, that would be my favourite theory. Um, but a lot of people would disagree with me, including That's Colin Wilson, who started out thinking there was something within the mind, but changed his mind halfway through his book and poltergeists. So I kind are you Are you... Sorry, are you talking sort of linking schizophrenia? No, not, like schizo that, not, sch not schizophrenia. I mean, there's... Um, no. I was just bringing it up in, as an example. I mean, you do have cases of split personality yeah. um, where you get a much simpler pers yeah. you know, personality from the subconscious. Um, but um, I was, I was hypothesizing that it may be possible to force something to the subconscious like that to actually trigger off some powers, um, but nevertheless not to be very sure. intelligent. Um, because it's just a little bit of your subconscious that's um, letting off a bit of stress. Interesting. Um, and that was a that was at odds with what Colin Wilson's. But Colin Wilson changed halfway thing. through his book, um, uh, all all the way through his no, right? book on the occult, his book on mysteries. It was sort of um, uh, he was talking about inner powers within us you know, uh, that could make us maybe yep. do strange things. And then halfway through the book, um, based on a um, fairly recent case known as the Black Monk, Monk of Pontefract, um, uh, great little narrative. Uh, that was in North of England. Yeah. Um, um, uh, great, great little narrative, but there was no Black Monk involved. Um, but nevertheless, a very interesting poltergeist case. Uh, he actually totally changed his mind and decided that somebody's subconscious couldn't, like, drag themselves up the stairs by the hair, which was one of the incidents, um, uh, which, sure. on the face of it, has some some bearing, but I don't think really fits the facts. So I, I actually, there's a whole chapter in the book nearly, going back into the Black Monk of Pontefract and um, trying to work out um, uh, if Wilson was right to flip his theory or not. Um, uh, and I think I've probably given away that I think he probably wasn't. But there's a lot of people that would disagree with me, <laughs> including Guy Playfair, who did tend yeah, to sure. go towards the afterlife theory. How much um, credence do you give to reports of poltergeist when you hear them from sort of uh, children and, and teenagers you mentioned before the onset of puberty and obviously the mind's still developing and stuff like that and and perhaps prone to exaggeration and thing like things like that 
do you take these um you know the testimony of younger people with a grain of salt um you know do you may is it different from the impression you well, get if an adult was telling you with every with every teen uh, with every teenager there is a there is an adult and if it was just the teenagers that were um yeah. experiencing things um uh, no no one probably wouldn't but um uh, usually the adults get very much involved and are the focus of the phenomena as well. I mean, it's certainly well with Enfield and it's certainly well with the um, uh, talking mongoose case. Uh, so, um, I mean, obviously, if it's yep. just one teenager and there's no other witnesses, um, one, would, um, uh, one would certainly say that's not one of the better cases for trying to prove it. And um, one, I suspect yep. what, I suspect no society would get invited to investigate such a case anyway, because obviously we wouldn't accept an approach from a teenager for very sound ethical reasons. And I doubt somebody's parent would ever approach a society until they saw some evidence. <laughs> mm. I just remember when I was a teenager and, you know, you'd come across some what would probably be classed as troubled in those days. And these days they'd, they'd probably try and slap the child with some sort of um, condition, you know, uh, somewhere on the spectrum or something like that. But I remember, you know, hearing stories about ghosts and stuff like that. And, pe and people, particularly from females, I found, um, whether it's because they're sort of more in touch with their emotions, I'm not sure. Um, but I would. I remember, a, not a report, but a friend of mine, and she used to see um, paranormal phenomena in, in her house, and she said she would see, um, you know, the classic corner of the eye phenomena and and uh, shadow people and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, again, I, at the time, I was right into it, believed everything she said, but I wondered if I approached her as an adult with, you know, the facts that she'd, she'd put forward as a teenager and see if they still married up, you know, whether it's part of... Um, the susceptibility to to believing in these things as a result of puberty, or you know, some you mean sort of you mean like if that. you asked her now, would she would she still say I definitely saw yeah, that? Would she have that's, the same story? That's actually a very yeah. very good experiment. I'd I'd actually, if you're still in touch with her, um, uh, I'd actually mm. do that. It's not an it's not something that I can think of that's been explored, but um, I do have um, no. Because, I mean, children, sorry, but ch children, you know, they have imaginary friends and all that sort of stuff. So a lot of stuff can be explained away um, from childhood in that regard. Obviously, if something as severe as a, you know, potential uh, haunting is, has affected them or they've seen um, paranormal phenomena or, or experienced it or, you know, physically, you know, been attacked or anything like that, that kind of thing is going to stay with you. So I just think it's interesting to try and distance yourself from, um, experiences garnered as a child when your ignorance is a bit more total, you know, than it is now, um, and and seeing if you know they still feel actually the same thinking way about it, I can think of quite a few members of our society that did see things when they were young, and which is what made them interested. So, uh, I think on average they do stay yeah. with you, um, but it would it would be interesting to ask your friend just to yeah. just to see. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's something I can follow up. Uh, might be a bit more difficult to get her to talk about it these days, but we'll see how we go. That's all right. If if I come across any good intel, absolutely, I'll be yeah. sure to pass that on, John. No worries. Just tell us a little bit, um, you know, about your conclusions about poltergeist phenomenon. We've, we've touched on those, obviously, but um, you're going to keep investigating them for your next book, or is this sort of have you come to the end of the road in terms Ooh, of your um, well, what I did, what I did, um, kind of come to the conclusion of is there's probably only one type of paranormal phenomena which probably has various guises. Um, now, 30 odd percent of, um, of, um, of ghost stories have poltergeist elements in them. And where it gets interesting is a lot of the other ghost stories are simply legends that fade away to nothing when they're investigated anyway. So it's so I yeah. I've come to the conclusion that there are two interlinked interlinked types of um symptoms of the same phenomena, whatever that happens to be. And I'm actually starting to get to think yep. that um, now in Colombia, when they talk about lights in the sky and and things like that, they don't necessarily think about little green men and things like that. They tend to think about it as a sort of as a sort of experience that sometimes goes together with other experiences like this. And I'm wondering. Like this thing, yeah, thing yeah. and I'm wondering if it's. I'm wondering. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's the entire range of stuff, including UFOs, which I'm not an expert in, mm. um, uh, or the UFO experience, yeah. is also in some way related. Um, I mean, UFOs have hotspots. We have. Um, uh, I've possibly concluded that there's particular types of. Um, Geometric, you know, geometric areas that are particularly good for seeing, having poltergeist experiences. And wouldn't it be nice to explore if these UFO hotspots were the same type of area? Well, we we've done um, shows on cryptids and so forth, and there there has been correlation. Just as an aside, there's been correlation. Uh, between UFO sightings and and exactly. Bigfoot and Sasquatch sightings and cryptid sightings and that sort of thing, so you know there could be some correlation between if it's a dimensional thing. You know, some people subscribe to, uh, you know, obviously the stone tape theory is probably the most popular one, isn't it? With, with in terms of the paranormal, but um, some people subscribe to, um, you know, the fact that ghosts appear. Uh, you know, as a visitor from another dimension or something like that, as opposed to a replay of the past. So I'm wondering if there is some correlation between that and, and other paranormal um, phenomena. Yes, so am I. That's why I might um, write another book about it in due course. Let's see how well this one sells first. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I see you've had to push back your release date, haven't you? Um, no, um, uh, the... Um, the publishers are based in Winchester and Washington, and um, uh, they do actually have a policy of okay. um, of of 
holding off on Amazon so as they can actually try to sell it to good old-fashioned American bookshops who won't um, who won't tend to take copies once sure. it's already available on Amazon. Um, no, yeah, it's um, on Amazon, I suspect, that's that, so that sort of thing. Yeah. So it was deliberately given a yeah. a release date to give them time to do that. Of course, um, it may not maybe a slightly pointless exercise at the moment. I suspect most of the bookshops are shut, but that was the um, logic behind it at the time. And um, so we just have quite a long run in, but there's nothing stopping people um, putting in their pre-orders at the moment. Um, uh, I, they, they can they do, do that through Amazon. Amazon. Um, do you have Amazon in Australia? I think I sent you uh, a. I think I sent you a site. Yeah, we, well, there's Amazon. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, yeah, oh um, my God, I'm so sorry. I did that bit out. Kind of, uh, we have a... <laughs> that's that, that's all right. That's all right. No problem. <laughs> I'll just call you Irish or something from now on. Or... I'll say Irish and well, I'm John Scottish. Fraser. How's that sound? Yeah, um, I'm Scottish, Scottish by blood, um, but I was born in exile in London. Yeah. <laughs> and I have now just gone down yeah. in the ratings by um, uh, uh, mentioning uh, Australia. Um, my sincere apologies, good people of New Zealand. That, that, that's okay. <laughs> I've heard it all, John. It's not a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. So, anyway, so people can find that. Um, through Amazon. Mighty, and it's New a mighty ape in New Zealand. I, I, in, in New Zealand, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's on Amazon yet. But you can get it. You can pre-order it on Mighty Ape. Excellent. So if people want to find that, um, look up Poltergeist: The New Investigation into Destructive Haunting uh, by John Fraser. And I see a little blurb at the bottom here saying it, including the cage, uh, the witch's prison, which we've talked about extensively. Um, which is going to draw a few people towards um, towards it, isn't it? Given the uh, prevalence yes. of that topic in in uh, in the in the zeitgeist of today, so excellent. All right, well, thanks for coming on, John. Uh, Occam's Razor, episode twenty six. We've been speaking with John Fraser, author of Poltergeist: A New Investigation into Destructive Haunting, which may or may not be available on Amazon soon in these uh, strange uh, we'll, times. We'll uh, just have to see. Uh, book and Poltergeist will find anyway, its way of it? getting out, I'm sure. But it's, been a, it's, been, it's been a pleasure to talk <laughs> yeah, to you. and um, uh, Thank you very much for having me on Occam's Razor. See ya. Bye. Excellent. See you later, John.